and be seated. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in the book of Acts. We are going to look through the book of Acts and see how God moved. There's no better example in Scripture about how we're able to see arrows being used by God. All right? Um, and so we're going to be walking through the book of Acts over the next few weeks. I thought about this because I was reading something last week about a school that had not been able to meet for several months because of COVID last year and that they were returning to school and there was a reporter there that was going in to see their first day of school, see what was going to be like when they got there. And when they moved in, they had plastered above where they walked in the mission statement for that particular school. So the principal had a mission statement for the school, a purpose statement, much like we do. And they had plastered that mission statement above the archway where everybody walked in. And the reporter asked the principal, why did you decide to do that in this time when you've been away? And he said, it is important, especially when the world changes, to remember why we're here. And it's important, especially when the world changes, to remember why we are here. And I've been praying through and thinking through and asking the Lord. The last um, 18 months, the last couple of years have been difficult years because of the pandemic around. And not just that, because of issues that have arisen within our country, within our culture, within our world. Feels like at times that as we take two steps forward, we take three steps back. That as things begin to open up, a new variant arrives. As things begin to smooth out, a new problem erupts. And in the midst of that, I'm serving as your pastor and trying to figure out, trying to seek the Lord in the ways to navigate us as a church through unexpected times. I was talking to my father-in-law. Many of you know him. He preached here at the end of May. We were just having a conversation the other day, as families do, and inevitably our discussions end up somewhere in the church realm. He's pastored, ministered for well over 50 years. And he said, Lyle, I cannot remember a more significant or difficult time to lead a church. Because of what is at play and because of what is happening around And as I prayed through that and thought through that, and as I've sought the Lord in the direction that we're going in messages and as a church in the weeks and in the months and in the years ahead, as hopefully we come out of the pandemic some point that we begin to return to whatever normal life may be, it's important to know that the world has changed and churches have changed and church has changed. And any time that has happened in the history of the world, there is an opportunity either for the church, our church, to become more effective and more what God intends, or to begin to fade away. And so as we think through that, I can't think of a more appropriate place to study than the book of Acts. And so over the next six weeks, I'm going to be preaching through the book of Acts from now through the end of September, 
And as a congregation, I'm going to challenge us as a congregation to read through and take notes and journal about the book of Acts. About what God did in the book of Acts. About how God moved in the book of Acts. And about how God used his people in the book of Acts. How he literally sent out arrows in his hands for the sake of his kingdom and for the spread of his glory. I want to give you a tool to be able to do that. And so as you leave today, there is something in the foyer for everybody that's here. And that is this. It is a small little blue book, but it is a scripture notebook. And what is contained in here is the entire book of Acts. And so as you leave today, I want you to pick up one of these. I'm going to give you each week the certain chapters to read for the week ahead. And as a church, I want us to journey through it. Now, this particular copy of Acts is different because... On one side, and I know you can't really see that, but those of you at home can see it pretty well, but in here you can't see. One side is the text of Acts, and on the other side are blank lines where you take notes on what you read, questions you may have, thoughts. Now, starting next week, you can start taking notes from sermons in there, but I'm just going to tell you this. We're going to concentrate on the sermons and worship over the next six weeks a lot on the first few chapters of Acts where it really gets going and what's really happening. And we're going to read the entire book of Acts over the next six weeks. And so there will be times when we'll be kind of back at the beginning and we're reading ahead. There'll be opportunities throughout the next six weeks for you to interact and ask questions about things that you're reading, about what's happening there, some online activities, maybe some in-person stuff, as we kind of digest what God is doing. So make sure as you leave today, you pick up one of these, and just so you can write this down wherever you are, I'll tell you again at the end, but we're going to read the first five chapters of the book of Acts this week. How many chapters? Five. I don't know if you can do the math or not. There are seven days in a week. That's less than a chapter a day, right? So five chapters in the book of Acts. And I want you just to write down questions you have, things you see, thoughts that you may have about it as you go. And so one of the things that we're going to do as we're preparing ourselves, thinking about what God is doing, is we're going to read God's Word. If you look at this diagram up here, this is not a diagram that is... um, Mine, originally, this is one that, I've, that I have seen and have seen used by a guy named Louis Giglio, who's a pastor in Atlanta. He's the founder of the Passion Movement, which has been influential in my life, uh, in many lives. But it is a picture of what arrows in the hands of God looks like. And what I love about this is back here, and I don't know a whole lot about archery. I have shot some arrows before, not real effectively, but I have. But what I know is that part of the reason this is back here is because it helps for the, the feathers, the, the helps for the arrow to fly straight, for it to remain true. And you can see that the Word is there. The Word of God is what we must remain foundationally grounded in as we push forward. We are the shaft or the arrow, and at the tip of it is the name of Jesus and the gospel, and we are set on fire by the Spirit of the living God. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look how the early church, based on the Word of God, was shot out for God in order to be used by Him. How the Spirit inflamed them. How Jesus' name was always at the tip of what they're doing. And the Gospel is what penetrated the hearts of people. And the reason for that is because I want to see a move of God among us. 1857, a man named Jeremiah Lanfear. You may have heard the name Jeremiah Lanfear. 
He was a man, a businessman in New York City. And he became burdened over the spiritual condition of his day. And in a small back room in a small church in New York City with a broken heart, he had a simple request before the Lord. He got down on his knees and he prayed, Lord, what would you have me to do? What do you want me to do, Lord? He looked around and he realized that there was immorality all around, that the church was failing, that people needed a new and a fresh awakening from the Lord. 1857, New York City, he gets in the back room and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Whatever it is, I will do. And so God birthed in his heart to begin a businessman's prayer meeting at noon, one day a week, for one hour. And so he went and handed out invitations around New York City. Started handing out invitations, and all it said is, prayer meeting, businessman's prayer meeting, one hour, come when you can, leave when you must. So that's all he did, he handed them out. And on September 23rd, 1857, he launched his prayer meeting, the very first one, in a business building on Fulton Street in New York City. And on that first day, when he showed up, there were zero other people in attendance. He had literally handed out hundreds of flyers and nobody showed up. Now, just to be honest, it would be hard not to be discouraged by that and think, well, you know what, guess God, I guess that wasn't really what I misunderstood. But that's not what Jeremiah Lenfear did. He started to pray. And he sat alone in that building and began to pray. And he prayed for five minutes, for 15 minutes, for 25 minutes, and for 30 minutes. And at 30 minutes, someone else walked in. Now you think, oh, so that must mean that hundreds came after that. No, not at that moment. By the end of the day, though, he did have six people total there praying the next week there was 20 the next week there were 40 three months later in january of 1858 they were taking three floors of the same building for prayer meeting by march of 1858 6,000 gathered daily in new york city not once a week daily 6,000 also, it had spread, were gathering daily in Pittsburgh, 2,000 in Chicago, 4,000 in Philadelphia. Meetings were also being held in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Cincinnati, New Orleans, and for some reason, Mobile, Alabama made the list. By May, it is estimated, so within nine months or so, it is estimated that 50,000 people in New York City had come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. A newspaper, you can go back and look at these, a newspaper reported in New England that several entire towns came to Christ, meaning that there was no one left in the town that was unsaved. It was estimated that for a period of months, up to 50,000 people a week were accepting Christ across America. And by 1859, 18 months later, after one prayer meeting that started with one person, 
one million people had accepted Christ in the United States. Now that's, a million people accepting Christ is impressive. What you also have to understand is, that is a time when the United States only had 30 million people in it. For the same understanding today, it would be the equivalent of 11 million people accepting Christ in 18 months in America today. So why are you talking about Jeremiah Lanfear in 1859? Because that is the last undeniable revival in the United States of America. 162 years ago. Now there have been pockets and places and movements since that time. Single churches or a single region, but nothing that has encapsulated the United States. Some people call it the Fulton Street Revival. Some people call it the Third Great Awakening. But whatever you call this moment when a million people gave their life to Christ, what we have not seen since that time frame is a revival of that size in America. I don't know about you, but man, I would love to be part of something like that again. In my life, in my family, in our church, in our city, in our nation, in our world. I want to see God show up and move. Not do church for church's sake or because that's what we do, but because God is moving in our midst. I want to taste the glory of God. I want First Baptist Goodlettsville to be a place that when people think about us, they think, all I know about that church is if you want to experience the presence of the living God, you go to First Goodlettsville. Not if you want to hear a great sermon, not if you want to listen to great music, not if you want good fellowship, not if you want a friendly church. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But what I want more than anything is if you want to experience the presence of the living God, then you better get there. And I feel that oftentimes as individuals and as churches, we have decided to settle for less than that. And when I look at our world, we are in need of God. I mean, we mentioned it already. What's happening in Afghanistan is heartbreaking. What is happening in Haiti is heartbreaking. What is happening in the overwhelmed hospitals is heartbreaking. What is happening in Waverly, Tennessee is heartbreaking. The political divide that is happening in our country is heartbreaking. COVID-19's resurgence is heartbreaking. The number of friends that I have posting about loved ones or husbands or others that are sick now with the virus and are significantly ill is heartbreaking. The racial tension in our country is heartbreaking. The economic instability is heartbreaking. The moral collapse of our society is heartbreaking. The violence on our television screens every night is heartbreaking. The wars that are happening or about to happen are heartbreaking. And it is time as the church that we recognize and realize and actually believe that the solution to all of that is not in the new election of someone new or in a new policy or a new endeavor. It is in Jesus Christ alone. In a world that has been revived, the only hope of our city and our world and our church is Jesus. 
And I want to be an arrow in the hands of our God that is used to penetrate the society we have for the good of our society. But more than that, for the greatness of our God and the spread of his kingdom. Isaiah 64.1 is the prayer of my heart. Oh, that you, God, oh, that you would rend the heavens, would tear the heavens, would open the heavens and would come down and that mountains might quake in your presence. Lord, my prayer is that you would come and that you would work and move in our place. And here's the good news. God desires to move in and through his people. And in the beginning pages of the book of Acts, we see the story of God beginning a movement through ordinary people, through his people, through the local church, through a group of people gathered in an upper room. God starts a flame that will spread throughout history. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Actually, we're going to start in verse 1, because I want you to see something here. It says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. Theophilus, by the way, some people, I think I've mentioned this before, and we talked about Luke, or when I, we talk about Acts, Theophilus is who Luke wrote, both the, the Gospel of Luke and Acts 2. It's a part 1, part 2, or volume 1, volume 2. And he says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. Some people think Theophilus is an actual person. That's what I believe, that it's an actual person. Some people think that it is a representative name because the name Theophilus actually means, means loved by God. So I write the first narrative to those of you loved by God or to Theophilus. All that Jesus began to to and teach until the day he was taken up. Let me just stop right there for a minute because I think this is a vitally important understanding of what we're going to read over the next several weeks. The book of Acts is the second volume, and he says Luke was the first volume where he taught about what Jesus began to do. Now, you, you can look ahead if you want to because it's part of our, our message here today. What happens to Jesus down around verse 9? What ha- The ascension, right? That's the church term for it. What, what, what does the ascension mean? He gone. That's the technical term for it right there, right? Like he flies up in the air. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But Jesus leaves the scene. The book of Luke is about Jesus coming on to the scene, Jesus living his life, teaching, doing miracles, Jesus dying for our sins, raising from the dead. And then in the first nine verses of Acts chapter 1, it says Jesus leaves. And yet Luke says that what's going to follow in this book is after I taught you what Jesus began to do in Luke, here's what he continued to do through Acts. So it's important to understand that this is the continuation of the work of Jesus. After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, so when they had come together, they asked, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of God? He says, listen, this is what's about to happen. And they say, are you restoring the kingdom of God? Verse 4, while he was with them, they commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait For the Father's promise, 
He tells them it is not for them to know in verse 7 the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jump down to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they arrived, they went up to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There are a couple of significant things that we want to get to here in a moment about that. But here's what I want you to understand from the very beginning and what I want us to focus in. We're really going to focus in today on verse 14. And knowing that God desires to move through his people, knowing that, just so you know, we're not saying that today is a formula or a guarantee. In fact, there is no formula, there is no guarantee. But there are principles and characteristics of God's people that allow us to receive and be moved by the Spirit of God when He decides to move. It is, as people have said, there is no guarantee from the Lord because if we had a formula we could put together and then God would have to act, then we would be manipulating God and that is impossible. But there are conditions that we can do. As one person said, we can put our sails in the position that when the wind of God begins to blow, we are ready to catch it and be moved by it. There are two things that I see in this one verse that help us to understand how God moves among his people. And the first one is this, that God moves among desperate people. God moves among desperate people. There was an attitude of desperation. They had a passion for God to move. It tells us that God gives them the picture of what they need to do. Jesus tells them what they are going to be. They're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that these people, as soon as he leaves, we're going to talk again about that in a moment. As soon as he leaves, they go back to the upper room and they are desperate to see God move. They are seeking the Lord in the midst of it. Now, we see that in verse 14, and honestly, most of the time, the Christian Standard Bible, which is what I use, what I preach from, it is what the Acts Journal, Scripture Notebook you're going to have will be. Most of the time, it is, it is, I think, does the best job of giving us readable, correctly translated text. But in verse 14, there's a a little thing that I would, would change, honestly, if I were looking back at this. It says, They were all continually united in prayer, which is what it says. But the New Testament's a little more descriptive there. It says basically, and they all were one mind, continually praying together. What that means is that the Christian Standard Bible has just said united, which is true. Being in one mind is true, but it's a picture there that I think is more than that. Because it says that all of them being in one mind, there was a centrally driven desire and object that they were pointing towards together. The words that are used there actually are, it says, 
Pos, one mind. Say, what does pos mean? It means all. And y'all have heard me say this for the last 14 years. In the New Testament, when the word all is there, all means all. There's no secret about that. It means that they were all together. Now, I just want to be real honest with you. It's not the first miracle in the book of Acts because Jesus ascends. But it's an early miracle in the book of Acts that God's people are gathered together and they are all of one mind. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I can't even get a unanimous amen in the house of the Lord. Imagine that, right? I've never been part of a church and I've been part of great churches. Pastor two great churches. But I've never been part of a church where that could be said. They were all of one mind, one purpose, one desire. Literally, one mind means, it's a compound word, meaning of the same mind, the same will, the same passion. They had wrapped their hearts around one central thing. And they all saw the most important thing as the most important thing. And that was accomplishing what God had called them to do. One of the real issues that we have in our ultra-specific, ultra-modern, person-centered world in which we live is that we have been made to believe that every person ought to be able to get exactly what they want. The customer is always right. And so if I want to go to Panera and I want to get on their little kiosk and I want to order something and take off everything that is there and rearrange it into something completely different and something completely new. And I want to get that sandwich made exactly like I want it. And then when I get it and it doesn't have, they forgot to take off the one sprig of lettuce I told them to take off, then I am furious because they didn't listen to what I needed. That I ought to be able to expect when I walk into a restaurant, no matter what everybody else feels, that the temperature ought to be what I want. That i got to have it my way and my specific thing set up for me. We took Eli to college a couple of weeks ago and dropped him off. We had this issue where we were driving two cars and we were coming back at two different times and we were leaving a car, which meant somebody had to figure out how to get back without a car. That somebody fell to me. And so we talked through, and my in-laws, my father-in-law and mother-in-law were in uh, Florida, and they had a car at their house, and they said, you can, you can, you can take ours, that'd be great. And so they left me the key, and I got in there with the key, and it was set up for someone that is not my size. Right? You get in there with the key, you push start, and the seat starts automatically adjusting, and you're like, wait a minute, that, that does not work. And it took me 10 minutes to figure out how to get the seat off of that personal setting because everything in our life is personalized. And we put that into church. They don't have the Bible study I want and the class that I want with the music I like and the preacher preaches in the way that the style that I like. 
And they don't talk about the issues I don't want them to talk about, and they do talk about the issues I do want to talk about. And not only that, when they talk about the issues, they talk about them in the way that I want them to talk about them and not the way that could challenge me in any way. I want church the way I want church. And yet, when you come to a place that you're ready to see God move, all of that goes out the window and you focus on the reality of doesn't matter what I want. What matters is what is God going to do and how can I put myself in a position to be there. If you don't think that these 11 apostles and the women that were around them and Mary and his brothers had different ideas and agendas and thoughts about the way everything should be done, then you are naive about the way people work. Because you can't get together a group of a hundred people and not have a contrary idea. Amen? You can't be married to another person and not have contrary ideas. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Husbands, it's okay to say amen there, all right? And so as they're together and they're moving, they put all of that to the side and like, I don't care about that. What I care about is being used by God for his glory, being an arrow in the hands of God, and I want to be used by him. And that means all my personal ideas and thoughts and preferences have to go out the window and I am focused on the mission of God. We have fractured passions in the church today, and it's not always bad things. It's one ministry, so one one group has a passion for this ministry, and one group has a passion for that ministry, and one group has a passion for that mission and one group has a passion for this mission and one Sunday school wants to do that and one Sunday school wants to do that and we have all of these competing ideas in this moment God moves among people that are desperate and focused and are looking to what God calls them to do no matter what else is happening in their lives and as a result of all those competing passions and ideas and thoughts even about good things is I'm afraid that we often miss out on what God intends to do and the God things. As a result, we become a church, the American church at large because of church, with no real passion to see God move in our lives because we're comfortable, content. We feel good about what we're doing. And we're missing out on what God intends. Jim Simble, is the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, said this in his book, Spirit Rising. I sometimes wonder if the early Christians were around today, would they even recognize what we call Christianity? Our version is blander, almost totally intellectual in nature and devoid of the Holy Spirit power the early church regularly experienced. How much loss do we suffer because we don't expect the Spirit to show up as promised. Everything we read about the church in the New Testament centered on the power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of Christian believers. Sadly for many of us, this has not been our experience. I believe it is time to return to the kind of faith we see in the New Testament church. They believed in Christ's Word. They expected the Spirit to do great things, and He came through as promised, and He will do the same for us today. Are we desperate? for the movement of the Lord in our lives. The first step to God moving, the first step of getting that sail up is that we have to be in a place of desperation. The second thing that we see in this passage is that God moves among people who are desperately praying. 
Jalen Orr says, No great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. Christians persistently praying. Verse 14 says that they were united. And what were they united doing? They were united continually in prayer. By the way, the word prayer here is the most generic term for prayer in the New Testament. It means all kinds of prayer. It means petition. It means adoration of the Lord. It means supplication. It means thanksgiving. It means every kind of prayer. That they were devoting themselves completely to prayer. And prayer is the thing that expresses our total desperation for God. That it is the thing that says, God, we need you, that we want you, that we have to have you in this moment. Now, how do we know that for sure? Answer this question. When do you pray the most in your life? When you're desperate. When you get the slip of paper at work that says you don't have a job next week. Or the business is shutting down. For believers, that's a time to hit our knees. But it's not just a time for us to hit our knees. It's a time on our text messages to send people that we care about that will pray for us. Messages, hey, I need your prayers. As we've walked over the last 18 months and even in recent days as the Delta variant has proliferated, as it's grown more, I've seen, like I said, people that I know, friends, People that I've known from Dyersburg and from here in this area and from all over that put up and they, you know, people that are believers put up, hey, this is what's happening with our family. And they always say, please, please pray, pray. Those of you that pray, pray. And the idea is when we get desperate for the Lord, we pray. It is a desperate move by God's people. The thing that we fail to realize is That we need God every day as desperately as we do when we think we need Him the most. These people were desperate for God to move. In Acts 1-8, Jesus had clearly laid out the plan. He desired for them to move to change the world. And notice what He tells them. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jerusalem. Now, He would have had them right there like, wait a minute, we've been in Jerusalem. But but you realize what's happening in Jerusalem, right? Like, just 40 days ago in Jerusalem, they... They killed Jesus. And they're not real happy with us. So the first thing Jesus says, hey, the first thing I want you to do is go to Jerusalem and Judea. That's where people hate you right now. I need you to go there. And then he says, and then I want you to go where? Jerusalem, Judea, where's the third place? Samaria. You hate them. So you need to go first to the place where they hate you. Then you need to go to the place that you hate. And then he says to the ends of the earth, these were boys from Galilee that Jerusalem's the farthest, most exotic place they'd ever been. They didn't know what the ends of the earth was. Jesus says, I need you to go to where they hate you. Then I need you to go to where you hate them. And then I need you to go to places you've never heard of. And then what strategy does Jesus give them to go do it? Nothing. What happens the very next thing? Right? So what the scripture says, hey, here, I just got a small little task for you. I'm getting ready to leave. Been preparing you guys for three and a half years. I need you to go to the place they all hate you. I need you to go to the place that you hate. And then I need you to go to the very farthest parts of the world that you've never even thought about. Good job. Bye. I mean, look what it says in verse 9. After he said this, this, 
That's Acts 1-8. To the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So they're there. Jesus says, go to the end of the world. And what do they do? That's what they do. They stare. Look up at the sky like, uh, what, 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 Jesus, what do we, what, huh? How do I know that? Verse 10, while he was going, who's he? Jesus, going where? They were gazing into heaven. You know what the word gazing means? Staring. Gazing into heaven. They may have stood there for the rest of their lives. Except Jesus goes up to heaven, sits down at the right hand, takes a couple of angels and says, Hey boys, I need y'all to go down and take care of something for me. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who had been taken up for you will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And they go, oh. And in a moment, it begins to dawn on them. So you have this weird moment. Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, do-do-do-do, staring up, two angels, not even speaking about, that's like the least impressive thing that happens in that whole scenario, is two angels are standing there beside them. Hey guys, what are you doing? Don't keep looking up there. He's coming back. Go do what you're supposed to do. And what's the next thing they do? Scripture says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is a Jerusalem Sabbath. And when they arrived, they formed a committee to plan out how God would use them in the days that were coming. Is that what it says? Oh, they held a think tank to discuss creative ways to promote God's movement and what the uh, marketing should really be. They did a demographic study to figure out what the felt needs were in the community that they could really speak to in that moment. Now, when they get back, what do they do? They pray. In desperation, they prayed for God to move. Charles Spurgeon once said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. And here's what I know from Scripture. If we want to see God move in our midst, if we want to see God move in our country, if we want to see God move in our community, if we want to see God move in our world, then we better be praying. We will not see God move apart from the prayer of his people. I'm going to give you a spiritual reality here that I cannot explain. And I do not necessarily understand. But I believe because scripture makes this clear. God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. God in his absolute sovereignty and control has chosen to limit his activity on earth to the prayers of his people. Can you explain that? No. I can't. Now, I do not mean in any way that God needs us or that God doesn't sometimes move just out of his own will. What I'm saying is that Scripture makes it clear again and again and again. God moves when his people pray, and he limits his activity to the prayers of his people. And I ask you the question, if God is limiting his activity based on the boldness and the bigness and the reality of your prayers, what limiting is being done? 
Andrew Murray, who's written lots on prayer, says this. God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. That God should have made the extension of his kingdom such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery and yet an absolute certainty. God calls for people to pray. In his grace, he has made his work dependent on them. He waits for us. And so here's my question. Do we have a passion for God to move? And more than that, are we praying for God to move? Leonard Ravenhill said that many people express an interest in revival. There are not so many deeply concerned about it, and fewer still burdened for it, and even fewer still heartbroken for it, and even fewer that will do anything about it. What are you willing to do to see God move? I just want to be real honest. There's some of you in there, I'm like, I'm fine. I'm good. We're good. And that's the reality that a lot of us live in is we think we're okay, and yet we know from Scripture that God's plans are higher and better and more. And what may be a comfortable life now is not what God intends. And if we're going to be the flaming arrows of God out into the world, we must live under an understanding of what God's desire is for us united in our passion for him, praying desperately for him to move. Here's what I want to challenge you to do over the next few weeks. On your way out today, pick up a scripture notebook. If you're watching online and you're like, I I can't get one of those, they're here at the church, you can come by and get one. If you say, I don't want to get out and go get one, if you'll call the church office and tell us that you want one, but you can't get out and get one, we'll get somebody to deliver one to you. But take this and read. Read the first five chapters of Acts this week. Take notes in it, and here's what I want you to do. I just want you to note ways God moves and what his people were doing before he moves. We're going to read Acts together. The second thing I'm going to do, call you to do is to pray desperately. Now I'm going to provide a time. I'm going to be praying in this sanctuary on Wednesdays at noon. From noon to one, I will be here praying for God to move in and amongst us. You are more than welcome to join me for that. It'll be, it won't be scripted. It won't be planned. It'll be just a time to pray. But you're more than welcome to come to that. I'll give you the same invitation that was given at the very first one in 1857. Come when you can, leave when you must. But I'll be here at noon on Wednesdays. If you, you say, I can't do noon on Wednesdays, I'm at work or I'm teaching or doing other things, then find an hour this week. An hour. One hour this week. To pray desperately for God to move in and among you, your family, his church, this world. And then let's see what God does when we obey. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we often fail to realize how truly desperate we are every day of our lives for your movement among us. And Lord, we have become comfortable in all that you have given us 
We have been blessed by what we, beyond what we even realize, Lord. And we've become comfortable in that and satisfied and content. And Lord, we know that that is not what you intend. Lord, I pray that you would set us on fire. That you would give us the ability to make an impact around us. And Lord, that our lives would be used up for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would begin the work in our heart, Lord. And we know the first step is that we have to become desperate for you to move. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir within us a desperation for you to move. And, Lord, I pray that we would become people of prayer for your movement in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.